I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Brad Kutsuyama, co-founder of IEX, the Investors Exchange. IEX is an alternate trading platform whose mission is to ensure fair trading in the equity capital market system. IEX was launched to combat the behavior of high-frequency traders who benefit from the information arbitrage made possible by electronic trading. Prior to starting IEX in 2012, Brad worked at Royal Bank of Canada, where he first witnessed the effects of high-frequency trading on the financial systems firsthand. Brad and IEX are featured in Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, about high-frequency trading. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What does the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, what do these exchanges actually look like? You know, the purpose of an exchange is to match buyers and sellers. Uh, so you do have a matching engine, which is a, you know, a piece of uh, software that sits on, on a hardware machine that is designed to match buyers and sellers. But exchanges now have turned largely into technology companies where they are selling access to technology and, um, you know, they're selling high-speed data. So, you know, New York still has a floor uh, where people, you know, are, uh, are interacting. But the, even the trades from the floor get, you know, sent out to Mawa, New Jersey, to a data center, and that's where the trades actually take place. Um, so, you know, the, the vision that you have on television is very different from the actual exchange and where the trading actually happens. You mentioned a data center in Mawa, New Jersey, for example, where the stock price is generated by a matching machine. How are certain traders seeing this information before others? Sure, yeah. So, so the matching engine really uh, is, what, is what creates the price. And since there are uh, 12 different stock exchanges in the United States, um, the aggregation, that, that trade and those quotes can happen across any one of 12 exchanges. So what happens is when the matching engine creates a trade, uh, they have to be broadcast. And part of kind of the evolution of what's happened with exchanges is that, uh, you know, certain firms ask to be in the same building and in the same room as the matching engine. And really that what it's for, it's latency, being the first one to know. We're talking inside the data center. You're probably talking about nanoseconds, which is feet, right. billions of a second. Um, and people are in bidding wars over how to get feet closer. You're referring to high-frequency trading, uh, which has been around since the late 80s, since the crash of 1987, and computers were supposed to facilitate trading to address the unfair practices and inefficiencies caused by trading manually. But your contention is that the speed and the location of computers is creating an unfair information advantage. Also, the exchanges themselves are selling information to certain players. Can you describe that further? So yeah, high frequency trading or computerized trading have been around a long time. And I think, you know, that's kind of, you know, the free markets in a way where as technology evolves, certain people use that technology and harness it to their own advantage to trade faster and, and smarter. So a buyer might have more technology than a seller. And when they come together and trade, you know, one person might have more information than the other. Um, you know, that, that's just free market forces. But the, the exchange itself should be neutral. It should have no bias towards how, you know, the outcome of that trade. Um, and the problem is as technology evolved, as certain people harness that technology, you know, I just don't know whether intentionally or not, you know, the exchanges went from, uh, you know, using technology to then selling technology. And I guess part of the, part of the, what, where, what that does is it, it kind of shifts the bias in a way, right? You want the person who's buying the technology from you to be profitable because if they weren't, they wouldn't be buying the technology. It, de it definitely creates a shift in priorities. I think that's what's been part of the problem. 
these exchanges were generating revenue by allowing these players a peak or a flash into their markets. Yeah, flashing an order to to a group of traders before routing it out of their exchange. So, um, you know, you have situations now where certain people, by buying these private feeds, uh, will know uh, a change in the market many, 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 many times faster than the everyday person who, who's relying on that for information. And is that legal? It's legal as defined by um, the current regulatory structure. Is well, it ethical? Is it proper? I would say most people would argue that it isn't. Companies are also focusing on the actual length of cables from point A to B, reaching all these exchanges. Yeah. What does that look like? There are, there are a variety of ways to get from point A to point B. You could, there's you know, faster and shorter cables. There are microwave towers. I've, heard of, you know, I've read articles that talk about lasers. So, I mean, there's, um, part of the issue is that there are many ways to get from point A to point B, and that becomes a challenge for those who don't have the technology. In Michael Lewis's book, uh, he talks about that in his mm-hmm. early chapters about uh, this company um, called yeah. Spread Networks, who was covertly building a line of cables uh, from Chicago to northern New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It was top secret. No one <laughs> yeah. could know about it. Uh, and it reminded me of Shawshank Redemption, the movie. <laughs> Right. He's in his prison cell, slowly but surely, scraping through that wall to get from his cell to freedom. No one knew. Uh, all the construction workers didn't know what or why they were building this. Yeah. Um, could you talk to that a little bit, this kind of race for, for speed? You know, part of what I took away from, from you know, that chapter of the book is to say, you know, here's all these things that are happening in the stock market. And what's the impact on broader society? Here you have highways being dug up. You have... A lot of people don't even know why it's happening. And then you have to ask yourself the question, what, this is all this to save three milliseconds off, off, your, off your trip between Chicago and, and New Jersey? It's kind of uh, the societal impact of this kind of redirection of, of talent and resources is, is pretty remarkable, I think, if you look at the big picture. Just to, to clarify, uh, this company was trying to lay straight cable. Where was it from? It was uh, From New Jersey. I think the point where it touched down is in Carteret. I believe. NASDAQ is in Carteret and then the CME in Chicago, CME with the futures exchange. And the issue was is that the mountains that were in between in Pennsylvania uh, provided essentially an obstacle where you couldn't go straight through. And I I believe they drilled through the mountain. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Brad Kutsuyama, co-founder of IEX, which is a marketplace that allows for fair trading practices in the equity capital market system. IEX was launched to combat the behavior of high-frequency traders who benefit from the information arbitrage made possible by electronic trading. Brad and IEX are featured in Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, about high-frequency trading. Now, you're from Canada, from Toronto originally, and you work for the Royal Bank of Canada and were brought to New York City where you you first noticed this problem of high-frequency trading. Can you explain that moment? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was 2007. I traded uh, technology stocks at the time. And I noticed that, you know, in 2004 and 2005, if I saw 100,000 Intel uh, offered for sale at $21. Intel the stock. Intel the stock. Yep. I would be able to buy 100,000. By 2007, I'd be able to buy 80,000. By 2009, I'd be able to buy 50,000. So you're just scratching your head saying, what in the world's going on? Um, you know, that was kind of uh, obviously a very frustrating thing, but that's kind of what started this investigation and know, you know, what in the world's happened to the stock market. What was going on? Uh, what caused that shift? So um, 
part of the part of the issue is that the hundred thousand shares that I saw uh, offered for sale um, was actually not just on a single exchange. If it was on a single exchange, it wouldn't have been a problem. Um, but it was actually spread out across as many as you know ten or twelve exchanges offering little amounts, different amounts that added up to a hundred thousand. So you know you press the button on your computer, I want to buy a hundred thousand shares, enter. Uh, that one press of the button creates as many as 12 different orders that get blasted out to the markets. And um, because these exchanges were geographically located in different towns, the orders would arrive at different times. Uh, and high-frequency trading firms were able to pick up a, a signal that, you know, here comes someone that just bought all of the intel on, on exchange number one, and they would race us to the subsequent exchanges. And the problem becomes that if I try to buy 100,000 shares of Intel stock, and I only get 55,000 shares, um, I now have to buy 45,000 shares you know, for a total of 100, and I have to pay a higher price to do it. Because these HFT firms have bought uh, and sold to you at a higher price these, these shares. Yeah, the, the net effect is I now have to pay a higher price for stock that I should have been able to buy um, you know, at that, you know, at, at, at the original price. How long did this go on for you until you figured out what was, go- what was happening? So what happened is in 2009, uh, RBC, I was running U.S. trading for them, and uh, they offered me the opportunity to run global electronic sales and trading, which is um, much more involved with technology and the plumbing of how the market works. And uh, before I took that job, I went out and I sat down with a couple hedge funds and a couple mutual funds that I knew pretty well, and I watched them trade. Because I, I actually originally thought that this issue I was having in the market was just an, a Royal Bank of Canada problem. Right. I didn't think that it was a, you know, I I didn't think it was a broader problem. And, and when I went out and I sat with these these clients, and all of them had the same problem, you're kind of like, whoa, this is this is something big. Um, and so it wasn't just yeah. calling tech support. I tried that. That was, that. that was the first thing I did. You know, you called the person that fixes your keyboard or your mouse when it breaks, but you know, they they didn't really have many answers. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I saw it that other people were having the same problem. That's really where you say, okay, this is a really big problem. And, and electronic gave me the ability to hire people mm-hmm. with various levels of experience. And it's kind of like each person walked into it with a piece of the puzzle. You started uh, your investigation uh, at RBC, mm-hmm. at Royal Bank of Canada, um, with some colleagues, um, one of whom was Robert uh, Park, who mm-hmm. had a more technological understanding of how these systems worked. Mm-hmm. You discovered that if you slow down uh, the speed at which these uh, bids reached the various exchanges, and they mm-hmm. all reached the exchange at the same time, yep. that you were okay. Can you describe that further? Sure, yeah. So so the original process was to just send the orders out the door as quickly as we could, uh, basically just blast them out to the market at the same time. And given the fact that the exchanges were in ge- different geographic locations, they would arrive naturally at different times. So what we did is we staggered when we sent the orders with the goal of arriving at all of the exchanges at the same time. That solved the problem. Uh, in a crazy way, getting slower solved the problem that was created by speed. It was kind of one of these, you know, oh man, like, you know, you just can't believe that you figured it out. And the funny part is, is that we felt like the solution was so obvious that we were in a race against the clock before everyone else figured it out. Um, at that point in time, we didn't necessarily realize that people weren't motivated to figure it out. <laughs> we probably could have just taken this knowledge, started a proprietary trading group and just made money ourselves. Which is what most people did. 
Which is which is what most people did. Yeah. Why did you make a different decision? Was it accidental uh, that you that you did, or uh, are you Moses? <laughs> um, it's you know it was probably one of the hardest questions you have to answer. I, I mean, the, the whole process of working with Michael Lewis, you're asked these questions. Um, it it wasn't a hard choice. As crazy as that sounds, it wasn't a hard choice. In the fact that you realize that you know every every day you're representing mutual funds and hedge funds that represent everyday investors, their retirements, their savings. And then when you find something like this in the market, uh, although it's probably the easiest way to, to get rich quick, it just didn't feel like the right thing to do. There was no debate. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Brad Katsayama, co-founder of IEX. We'll hear more from Brad coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Brad Kutsuyama, co-founder of IEX, the Investors Exchange. IEX is an alternate trading platform whose mission is to ensure fair trading in the equity capital market system. IEX was launched to combat the behavior of high-frequency traders who benefit from the information arbitrage made possible by electronic trading. Ironically, you know, I, I, I mentioned Moses, right, in passing. <laughs> uh, but, but Moses, too, was actually a reluctant leader. Right. Uh, he didn't set out to want to lead his people. Right. Uh, God came to him and said, you know, I'm, I'm giving you this responsibility. And he didn't want it, right. actually, at right. first. Yeah. Uh, was there reluctance, any reluctance on your part? I think that my greatest reluctance came when, when Michael Lewis asked us about writing this book. Obviously, there are a lot of benefits. We were a startup. There is, you know, you just can't ask. It's the greatest thing that could ever happen to a startup. Um, but you also realize there are a lot of negatives that come with it. The, the the unwanted attention, the the criticisms, the getting thrust in the public spotlight. Those are not things that I would have wished uh, for myself or my family. Um, we did it because it was the best way to fully explain a problem and to create the you know, spark the change necessary in just in, in fixing this issue. So I think mm-hmm. I was very reluctant um, to do that. How did he find you? How did he come to you? You know, it's funny. And back in 2010, we got an inquiry through a client saying, hey, Michael Lewis is kind of nosing around on high frequency trading. And, and at the time, I just wasn't allowed to, to speak with him. Um, you weren't because you were still at RBC. Yeah, I think there's. I think Wall Street in general is a little leery of Michael Lewis, right? So, um, you know, I don't. I don't blame them for that. But you know, we said no. Um, in 2012, I got the same call, but now now we're at IEX. We're just a bunch of people in a room. Uh, so obviously, there there are much less risks to saying, yeah, of course I'll talk to him. And, and he was looking for background because he was writing a story for Vanity Fair on Serge Alanikov, uh, who was a high frequency programmer that that got that got put in prison. Um, and he wanted to understand what high-frequency trading was. So really, it started just on background and providing him with a broad-level understanding, You know, having a conversation like this. Here's a broad level of understanding of, of high-frequency trading. Um, he asked to visit our office the next time he was in town. And I think when he stepped into our office and saw uh, probably 17 of us in a room that was like 400 square feet, he kind of looked around and was like, what in the world's happening here? So um, became slightly more interested in what we were doing. Um, and then it just morphed into saying, hey, I, this looks like an article. He'd talk to more people. He'd do more digging. Oh, this might be a short book. Mm-hmm. He did more digging, talked to more people, and basically just said, this could be 
this could be something really interesting. So it kind of evolved, but I feel like we we got kind of lucky. How important was Michael Lewis, do you think, in helping uh, to inform the public and to create this really what could be a sea change in the world financial markets? Sure. We, we could not have asked for a better person, to be honest. His his gift is, is, is explaining complicated topics in ways that people can understand. When, when my parents can read it and and actually have a better understanding of what what I'm you know what I'm trying to do now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, he clearly did his job very very well. So and and while he he is uh, an ambassador to you and to the industry, um, is there any part of you that's kind of disheartened by the the knowledge that it it requires somebody like a Michael Lewis uh, to come along to un- uh, to uncover uh, you know this uh, immoral behavior? I mean, think about all the other immoral behaviors that take place that don't have a Michael Lewis as their chaperones. Right. I mean, that's a it's an awesome question. I mean, I think the sea change that that we see. Um, you know, part of Michael Lewis couldn't have told the story if no one was willing to tell him what the story was. And and the industry over Wall Street overall is very, very protective about information. From from our, our seat, um, we view this this clash between society and Wall Street in a way where where, you know, if you look at what's changed in society, uh, it's free information for everyone. It's information access. You want to learn about someone, you know, go on go on Google and Google them and you can find out. So you have this, you know, you have society that's just craving and delivering information and then you have Wall Street that's hiding it and protecting it. Mm-hmm. And they're, they are smashing into each other. That has to change. And I think, you know, hopefully Michael Lewis kind of, you know, struck the first blow in terms of greater amounts of transparency in terms of in, in, in how we operate. Before you started IEX, you developed the THOR, which was this order management system within um, RBC to yep. address this latency issue, this yeah. speed issue. And you were trying to sell this product uh, to banks mm-hmm. uh, and your competitors. Mm-hmm. RBC, I mean, their posture was relatively supportive through this. Can, yeah. you, talk, can you talk about, you know, just kind of the, the delicate balance that they had to strike? Because on the one hand, they were a Wall Street player, but they were also a allowing you to make it fair. So RBC was really late to the game overall in electronic trading, um, which was, you know, again, the, the Canadian way is to be a little bit cautious when things are happening. So, you know, in many ways, RBC had much less, had less conflicts to resolve when we discover this and we say, what do we do with this? And they allowed you to lose $10,000 a day <laughs> while you were doing your investigation, uh, yeah. while you were developing this technology. Yeah. It never, it ne- you know, it's... I, I ran uh, trading before, mm-hmm. so I was used to handling millions of dollars of risk. So 10000 was really just the limit to say, we're looking for data. We need to prove this. And trust me, I'm not going to get carried away with trying to prove this point. And your theory that the distance mattered. Um, it, w- it was more about saying, why... When I only go to one exchange, why do I always get 100% of what I go for? But when I try to go to multiple exchanges... I start missing on various exchanges. You realize that there was a certain timing problem. You know, in hindsight, it just seems so obvious what the issue was. At the time, you know, we're just going through it's trial and error and trial and error. When was the moment when you decided, you know what, instead of selling this product, Thor, under the auspices of RBC, why don't we create our own exchange, the IEX? What was the epiphany moment there? I think the big the big moment there was that we realized a, a number of the biggest clients out there started to tell us that 
we can't trade any more with RBC than we already are. Meaning that you have this great solution. We want to use this solution, Thor, um, but you can't be 100% of our trading volume. You, you, you might not be able to be 10% of our trading volume. So what you realize is that we're, what, what we solved is we really, really improved people's trades when they traded with RBC. But we didn't improve their trading overall. The epiphany moment, in a way, was uh, Rob Park. Uh, we were sitting around. We were, we were actually applying for a Wall Street Journal Innovation Award on Thor. And um, we're sitting around, and we're trying to describe what Thor is and what it does and the benefit. And, and Rob said, the exchanges have to route to each other. So why not sell Thor to an exchange and allow that exchange to have the best router uh, in the market. And and you know, the natural thing is, well, why sell it to an exchange? Why don't we just become an exchange ourselves? That's kind of like we all, you know, we all are like looking at each other saying, okay, is it, you know, is this even possible? And and then as we really trace back, you know, what's the best way to possibly solve this problem on the biggest scale is to become an exchange. And this is an aside, but Jim Clark, who is the founder of Silicon Graphics, of Netscape, yep. uh, he's on your board. Yep. And it was interesting to me that Jim Barksdale, right. uh, who funded $300 million, was his investment, who funded Spread Networks, which was this uh, cable that yep. we talked about earlier, this covert cable um, to try to generate speed. He also was uh, connected to Netscape. He, yeah. was, he was the CEO of Netscape. Yeah. Was that just accidental? Completely. Completely. I think it's, you know, it's in a way, I mean, they were both part of, you know, this great disruption with Netscape. And I think once you've disrupted an industry, you crave more disruption. It's it's purely coincidental. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Brad Kutsuyama, co-founder of IEX, which is a marketplace that allows for fair trading practices in the equity capital market system. You decide to leave RBC and forego income. Can you talk to me about that decision in more detail, aside from the moral one? Um, yeah, I mean, our, our, second, our second son was born three days after my last day at RBC. So... Make, taking a making a risk like that, going from making you know good money to two thousand dollars a month, uh, and having a second child that that was that that took a lot of discussion. My wife and I talked all the time about the risks. I, I actually thought I would I would probably retire at RBC to be perfectly honest. You decide to start this new exchange. Talk to me about the early days of what does that mean? What does that entail? So what it entails is first of all you need to raise money. Um, the hardest part about starting an exchange or starting any kind of market is that you have to spend all the money up front building it, and then you turn the switch on. And trading may or may not happen. So we had to raise money. We had to design the market. Um, we had to recruit people because it's a you know two people can't go out and start a you know a stock exchange. Um, so there was a huge upfront spend. Yeah, talk to me about raising money. Raising money was brutal. What people will say and what people will do are 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 very different. Um, People love the idea, you know, this is a no-brainer. And then, you know, in the 11th hour, you, you find out that, you know, these people aren't going to invest. It's a free rider issue in many ways where I want this problem to be fixed, but I'd rather someone else go through the hassle of, of making it happen. And, you know, it took us nine months to raise money. We were planning on about a month. <laughs> so, that, you know, Ronan, who's my partner, we'd be riding up and back the subway. One day I'd be, I'd be like, oh, this is never getting funded. And he'd say, you know, no worries, we got this. Mm-hmm. The next day he'd be like, "We're never getting funded." I'd be like, "Hey, don't worry, we got this." So it's you know, it's kind of a, 
you go the highs and lows are extreme. And what part of uh, ultimately some of the investors' reluctance was just the disruption that this exchange was going to cause? The biggest issue we had is that the the you know the mutual funds and hedge funds have never invested in a market before. We, it was completely uncharted territory, and the amount of money that we were asking for is so small. You're asking a a multi-billion dollar hedge fund for a million dollars. They don't even know what to do with that. And convincing them that the problem was was big enough for them, the headache was greater than the notional amount. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really had to spend a lot of time explaining why it was so important that we are owned by the end user of this market. Talk to me about that first trade uh, and talk to me about when you did uh, flip the switch. What yeah. happened? Yeah. I mean, we our first day we traded, I think, 250,000 shares. It was just not a lot of volume. I mean, some people thought we, were, we weren't going to trade anything. So tr- I guess trading something was good. You you were not able to to notice any patterns or understand what was going on when you flipped the switch and you saw little fragments being traded yeah. until one of your colleagues, uh, Josh Blackburn, who had been in the military, uh, provided a picture for you. Yeah. Can you describe briefly what his background was and sure, how that yeah. happened? Sure, so, yeah. So in the military, what he did um, is he created a, a, basically a visualization um, of of the war, uh, of attacks in different regions. Uh, He was stationed in Afghanistan, probably one of the most talented people I've ever seen. And when he left, uh, he went to work for a high-frequency trading firm, you know, back to this, you know, this migration of talent. Um, And and, and then he came to work for IEX. And, and, you know, for IEX, he he develops, again, the visualization tools that allow us to see what's happening in the market. So um, how do you make sense of everything that's happening? And and what Josh did is... um, I would ask him to highlight certain themes, to filter out certain things, and just give me a picture of what I really need to see. And we worked on this for months. And what did he show? What did it uncover? What it uncovered is behavior from different players that were trading on our market. Some banks and brokers would just send us their whole order. Let's just try to trade as much as we can on IEX because that's what my client wants to do. other brokers, when they would find a seller at, at IEX and they were a buyer, would send us 100 shares, 100 shares, 100 shares, 100 shares. And it, it becomes clear that their intention, even though they're representing clients, is not necessarily to get that client the best price and the most liquidity. It, it becomes a very conflicted way to trade because, you know, we're showing you we have the other side and you're not willing to send us a real order. So, So what do you do in response to that type of behavior? We take it right to the bank and say, "This is look. Here's evidence and documentation that you're not properly interacting with our market." And how do you know that IEX is not like another, you know, just patching a patch, uh, putting a, a bandaid on on the solution that somebody else is not going to find another yet another loophole, and that it's not a game of whack a mole? Right. So I think a bandaid would be we start IEX and we don't invite any high frequency trading firms to show up. And what we've done instead is we've invited all of the high-frequency trading firms to show up, but they have to play by our rules, and they have to they have to trade according to our technology and the way we've set it up. Okay. And we've set it up specifically um, to slow down high-frequency trading. So what you find, which is really interesting to us, is a few HFT firms, high-frequency trading firms, say, I don't care about being slowed down. I'll trade on your market. And they're actually pretty valuable subscribers. You know, They're pretty valuable participants on our market. But dozens of high-frequency trading firms won't come. Mm-hmm. They refuse to come. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about, you know, as we said, there are some good high-frequency trading strategies and there are some that are bad. Um, their reaction to what we've built and whether they'll show up or not, you know, tells us a lot. 
that that's actually a really, really good positive sign that this can be a long-term solution. In addition to the Michael Lewis uh, being your cheerleader, another defining moment was when Goldman Sachs sent a lot of trades to IEX. Yeah. Can you describe that moment? Sure. Um, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, it basically doubled our volume in 50 minutes. Um, I think that was the first time when we realized that IEX had a tremendous amount of potential. Did you know it was coming? No. No. They they had been they had been trading. Uh, they had been analyzing their trades, um, and again, it, you know, they're a large firm. And I think that you know, from from that standpoint, part of it was about getting everyone at that firm to agree that this is a better way forward. And I think, you know, and I think that I was lucky to meet the right people at that firm that represented IEX as a solution, and this was their way of showing that you know they they backed the solution. Now the two people um, who were instrumental in this were Ron Morgan and Brian Levine. This is a very yeah. complex web of conflicts of interest and banks involvement. How pervasive is this this problem? Sure. I mean, if you look if you believe some of the estimates out there that high frequency trading is 50 to 60% of the volume, they're the single largest volume client on Wall Street. Now the challenge becomes is that what part of that is good and what part of that's bad, mm-hmm. and I think I think some people just don't know. Uh, and what we've tried to do at IEX is we've tried to sort out the good from the bad in a way. I think it's the market's job to do that. You have two children. Yeah. Uh, what do you tell them? What does Daddy do for, <laughs> for a living? They have no idea. Uh, they they've seen me on TV a couple times, and that gets them really excited. Have they ever asked? What what is what do you what is your work, Daddy? Where no. are you going? They, no, they, they, our our oldest is about to turn four. He asks me if I'm going to work, and when I say yes, he gets very he gets very sad. They don't know, um, you know. And and I'm 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 probably most excited for them to read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily excited for the amount of swearing that is done in the book. You know, there, there's a proud moment I think when your kids can read about you. And your parents, what do they make of this? Um, they're proud. Uh, they're nervous, you know, with all the publicity and all the things that have happened. We've obviously created a lot of very powerful enemies as well. So I think, um, you know, as parents, they worry. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're they're proud. You know, I was just lucky. My my parents are great, and I was raised the right way. Decisions that might have been hard for other people weren't that hard for me. I think I owe a huge debt of gratitude to my parents for that. You mentioned that your parents were great uh, and they instilled certain values. Do you have an example of that? As a kid, you know, I think the biggest thing was our house was never yes, no. They'd always force you to explain and rationalize why you wanted to do something. So I, I feel like it turned me into a good critical thinker, into a good rationalizer. What's an example when um, you were younger? When I was young, I wanted to be able to stay out later. And part of my rationale for, for being able, for them allowing me to stay out later is that this is when this is when people are getting picked up. And, and if I need to leave earlier, I got to try to find my own ride home. Sometimes it's not always the most reliable person. You want me to be driven by parents, et cetera, et cetera. So getting my curfew pushed up to meet my friends so that I could get home uh, the proper way. Uh, they were like, oh, oh, you know, that sounds like a good idea. Not mm-hmm. just I want to be out later because my friends are, but mm-hmm. you have to have a better reason for that. It's just not stopping at, at the high level. You just got to keep drilling and drilling and drilling, and that's really how we, we figured things out. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. My guest has been Brad Katsuyama. Coming up, we'll meet John Oranger, founder of Shutterstock. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.